Association for the Visual Arts is the peak body protecting and promoting the professional interests of the Australian visual arts. Nava in Conversation is a series exploring the issues and challenges of working in the sector. We speak with artists, curators and administrators to gain insight into the experiences of contemporary practice and seek to propose ideas for change, progress and resilience in both local and global contexts. like to acknowledge that our sharing of stories and ideas today are taking place on the stolen land of two First Peoples nations this afternoon. Our sovereignty remains unceded here on the 23rd of April 2020. I'm currently based on the land and waterways of Wongal country in Sydney and as a guest to these lands and waterways I pay my deepest respects to our Wongal elders past, present and emerging. I am joined by my dear friend and sister, Emily Umbele. Uh, would you like to share whose country you're on this afternoon, sis? Yep. Hi. Um, I'm here on um, Binjara Bunga country as part of the, the Woman Nation. And as always, I pay my respects to elders past and present and through them extend all of my respect, love and solidarity to any First Nations people and all First Nations people here. Awesome. So Binjarab Noongar and Wongal country have been meeting places and places of sharing for over 80,000 years for us and will be hopefully for a long time after us. So I would also like to extend our acknowledgement to all First Nations mob who might be listening to these yarns and acknowledge your strength and resilience as well. My name is Georgia Mokak. I'm a proud Jugan woman from Broome and the First Nations Engagement Coordinator here at the National Association for the Visual Arts. And would like to welcome everybody back to Nava in Conversation, our monthly podcast series where we yarn up with artists and curators and organisations to discuss some of the more critical issues within the Australian arts sector today. And today I'm joined by my sis, Emily Ubele, proud Tukalaan Fijian woman and multidisciplinary storyteller. Emily's work is intercultural, centering the development of ethical trans-Indigenous collaborative creative processes and outcomes that are informed by Indigenous epistemologies, ontologies and cosmologies. Thanks so much for joining us, Is. Thank you for having me. So maybe just to start with uh, some of our listeners who may not be so familiar with your practice, if you could just introduce yourself and maybe expand on the idea of developing an ethical trans-Indigenous collaborative processes and outcomes that's part of your practice. So Maloni Nisambula Vinaka, my name is Emma Lair. I'm from, uh, my, my lineages are connected to Kunonu in Tokelau and I'm also to uh, Wallace and Fortuna through my maternal paternal side and then I'm also Kaitzemba from Viti level in Fiji um, and so my practice is really strongly informed by both of my Pacific lineages and basically as a kid who has had to navigate what it means to use term to self-identify in in the diaspora, what it means to live away from home um, and also be not only belong to two different incredible Indigenous cultures, but also navigate that in parallel to the Tangata Whenua people of the lands that I have been raised and 
on and work on. My practice primarily is started in performing arts as I went through drama school and studied at Wapa and then in, at NIDA. And then slowly in the last four years has transitioned more into the digital space and looking at how we as Indigenous people work or engage with the digital space as a platform and vessel for storytelling, as well as um, preservation of culture and um, knowledge and finding ways to, my passion really is just finding ways for different Indigenous cultures and communities from within the same culture or from completely different cultures, how we can find ways to come together and share that really respects our own protocols and um, honours our own knowledges and ways of knowing and doing things, um, but also creates new ways for us to engage with each other in the creative space, in the performance, live art space, but also in the digital space. That's huge. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Uh, now, you've recently written a fantastic article for Witness Performance titled Pause and Think Before You Rush Online. And uh, this article is addressing some of the risks and impacts on on-demand connectivity, which is perhaps even more relevant at the moment. So for those of you who haven't read the article, you can find the link in the intro to this podcast on the NAVA website. But sis, after reading uh, this article, I, I was thinking about this podcast and then was thinking that you probably could have started your own podcast series around all of these ideas and research. <laughs> but for the purpose of this podcast, we might try to focus on a few key points. Could you share with us what drew you to this topic and why you felt it was so relevant now, although it sounds like your interest in the digital sphere has existed before the current climate that we're in? Yeah, I think that, well, for me, at least, like the intersection between live performance and the digital world, really, and I started to gain an interest in it when I noticed how um, we as Pacific communities engage with social media platforms like Facebook and Instagram, and how so much of our protocols and traditional customs um, around celebration, but also around mourning and grieving have become interwoven with how we engage with um, social media. For example, people taking photos of celebrations that usually would be private or, for example, like someone being marked, officially marked, or people videoing or live streaming funerals and burials for people who, have, who are unable to make it. So that's where my interest really started to kind of like see the interwo um, interwoven interconnectedness of how Pacific people engage. Um, and then working with Talanoa, which is a digital platform for Pacific storytelling really like forced me to like I guess spend more time thinking about process and what it means for us as Pacific Indigenous people to be putting our stories and our knowledges into the digital space for essentially forever and so how do we I guess as custodians or vessels of other people's stories people who are creating invitations to hold these stories for x amount of time how do we do that with the most respect and care that we possibly can? Knowing that in some way, shape or form, all of these people and their stories and their words are kind of frozen. And that, I mean, even the difference between stories that I've put online since coming to Talanoa maybe three years ago, the difference 
in people's journeys in the last three years, I can say like for a lot of them, they've changed and grown so much. And if we were to go back and retell their story now, they would be, they would have so much more to add to their, um, add to their stories. And so my interest has always been about like the continuity and the replicability of, um, I hope I said that right, <laughs> of the digital space and how the repercussions for us as Indigenous artists and as Pacific peoples, consequences of us engaging with putting our stories in these spaces aren't necessarily the same because our knowledges have existed for hundreds of thousands of years outside of these spaces. This technology, even though it's new, like we tend to forget that it's new because it's so heavily integrated. The internet is so heavily integrated into our daily lives. So it's easy for us to forget that just simply recording something, uploading it, or just live streaming something will have repercussions that we're not quite, we don't quite even know yet. You know, like there's still studies on the neuroscience and the effects of us engaging with the internet and social media kind of being reproduced and updated every year about how it's changing the physiological makeup of our brains. So that all has kind of like informed why I was interested and why I have been um, interested. But what really, I think, pushed me to want to write this article was watching the online discussion that was happening and how that was translating in the performing arts industry mostly, but also in the visual arts industry about having to, I guess, artists wanting to um, to make up for the loss of income that either had already begun to happen four weeks ago or was predicted to happen in the next three, six, 12 months. Because I was really becoming concerned about the amount of the discussion that was happening around how do we quickly get online and monetize it without thinking about um, or having any protocols involved like in process to kind of protect the integrity of those artists' works, and not just from independent artists, but also from arts organizations. Most, arts, most of these arts organizations that I was seeing kind of push out content from their artists that were in their programming didn't have existing policies, digital policies, digital rights policies in place to protect their artists. And of course, as always, those of us who are Indigenous and those who are culturally and linguistically diverse, those who are disabled are the ones who are the last people that are thought about and so therefore are the hardest hit by the impact of the decisions made around us. So my concern really came out of this desire to ask people to just stop and think first before they begin to embrace creating and pushing out digital content in the name of productivity because of loss of income. And just sort of expanding on um, what you were saying about First Nations peoples often being sort of last to be thought of. Um, something else that you touched on was that our work is often imbued with a whole lot of responsibility and sort of sacred skills and legacy that sort of adds another layer to intellectual property and copyright which yeah may not be being considered by these institutions or sort of space for support with the the funding bodies that are creating these opportunities yeah, totally. Like, I think that already, because there is no national federal policy around protecting First Nations intellectual property, that even that in itself 
really kind of sets the the precedence for everybody else. Like, I don't think people are, maybe now, I hope so, people are beginning to really understand how important First Nations sovereignty is, not just for Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander communities, but for everybody else. Because mm-hmm. um, culturally and linguistically diverse advocates and BIPOC advocates are coming out of the waterworks saying, hey, like, this is why we need arts policy. This is why we need protection. But we can't have that until First Nations artists have that in place. And currently what exists are guidelines and recommendations, but not actual pro- protocol, not actual enforced policy that can actually protect these artists. And so what happens is you have these people just popping up. There's already so many loopholes and like so many gaps and um, that people are exploiting within the industry that my biggest, like, I guess, anxiety comes from seeing the potential for this to open up and cause even more issues for people that are just like, look, I just have to put food on the table and, and for those of, and the First Nations communities are the most vulnerable because of that so yeah I think that and and of course like as always it's different from for every community like every every first nations community every indigenous community does things differently (laughs) I know that even within my Tokelauan community across the atolls we all have different ways of running our own communal spaces and so the protocols that we we agree to um, and how we choose to protect our knowledge it is going to differ to the way that maybe artists and communities from different atolls are going to do that. And so we, we don't really have any frameworks to work with on a national basis in the Pacific arts because there's nothing there that protects, um, really protects and enforces the rights of intellectual property and copyright for Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islanders. So yeah, it really, it makes me quite anxious to think about that. Mm. And the sort of impacts and ramifications of that you sort of talk about in your article as well, things like being vulnerable to sort of reproduction and appropriation and things like that. Yeah, well, I think that, I mean, you know what is, I actually saw a really horrifying example. Not many people know about the haka that is used by the All Blacks, demonstrated by the All Blacks in their rugby games. Everybody knows it because as a really famous, you know, war cry that that represents challenge, a challenge to any, you know, uh, attacker or challenger who wants to come, come forward and and meet on the field against the Māori and against the All Blacks. And it's become like a really strong indicator of, um, I guess, cultural flag of the New Zealand identity. But not many people actually know the iwi or the tribe, I should say, that that Kamate um, haka comes from, and that there actually is that kamate, that haka is actual intellectual property of a particular iwi. And as a result, what has happened is um, actually the other day, there was a video that went viral of these NHS nurses in the UK trying to recreate the, the kamate haka um as a way to it's so cringe as a like way to challenge the coronavirus so they look like maybe there was like 20 of these nurses doing a really offensive really embarrassing poor version of their interpretation of what the kamate represents and replacing the words with words about 
that we're going to overcome the coronavirus, you won't beat us, and like doing all these really disgusting pukana, like pulling faces. And that is a direct result of like their culture, Māori culture, being brought to the forefront and being, uh, I guess, archived in this digital world where people can access it on television, on YouTube, on Facebook. Like it's one of the most well-known hakas all over the world. And these British people have taken it out of context, have replicated it, reduced it, watered it down, completely changed its meaning with sadly good intentions but there is no like accountability and sadly there's been a lot of defense like a lot of the tone has been quite defensive from those nurses from that hospital and that's because the the line has become blurred between like what is sacred and what belongs to that community that tribe and is being shared out of the goodness of their and like I guess pride of their culture and also people's appreciation and desire to participate in that and you know and so yeah that was I saw that the other day and I was absolutely mortified and that is a perfect example of what happens when we bring can bring our culture indigenous culture and practices to the digital space once it's out there like we really can't we can't do anything about it we have very, very little control. And so people can do whatever they want with it. You know, people can take it down or delete it. But in terms of actually trying to enforce and actually like really teach people, not just enforce people doing, changing their mindsets, but actually wanting them to change their heart and understanding and appreciation of other people's culture and why it's important to keep something sacred and just to certain communities. That's really, really hard to educate and build policy around. Yeah, that's so disappointing. But I guess also not surprising which is maybe even sadder but it's interesting that you bring up that example because just in the last week and I'm sure many of our listeners are aware of the fake art harms culture campaign the bill was uh, taken to senate again the report came out last week that the bill was not passed so we're still in a place where our laws are not valuing uh, this knowledge and uh, how do I describe it? I guess sort of seeing the financial benefits of all of the tourism industry that benefit um, and all of the businesses that uh, if this bill were to be passed um, would be affected rather than the communities Mm. (laughs) and generations and generations of sharing that are, yeah, I guess it's, yeah, just disappointing that we're sort of in 2020 and still dealing with this stuff but but not surprising and I think that's really like I mean that's super also indicative of like the fact that because our government is so uh, was so unprepared for this (laughs) despite I mean you know allegations that they already knew so they could prepare ahead of time despite despite that because they were so unprepared it means that so many so, so much policy and so many gaps that really need to kind of be filled and addressed at this time are just like being walked over. So in the name of like what is, I guess, they would deem a priority or essential or an essential service, things like culture, cultural protocol and protecting what's sacred, understanding the value of that, it kind of like disappears. And and that's where we start to see also things like other policies 
such as like, you know, like mining of indigenous land start to kind of become past because everybody's kind of got their eye looking in one way, the discussions like in another way, facing another way. And so the, the policies that should be passed aren't getting passed and the policies that shouldn't be getting passed are getting passed. And I think that's also like a big point of concern as well, because if people are kind of just like rushing to produce content and panicking and pushing out, pushing out work or are just seeking to exploit artists, First Nations artists, culturally, linguistically diverse artists in these spaces, then what's going to happen is that there isn't going to be like any time to kind of like stop and discuss how to you know like we said protect those artists and and we're going to look on look back on it once we get out of all of this and be like wow okay look at all this destruction that has happened and things issues that already existed have been compacted and compounded and gotten worse yeah for sure I guess you you sort of talk about that a little bit in the article as well in terms of some of the short turnarounds for submissions not giving people enough sort of time to research and all of the pressures that come with that and we were talking a little bit earlier about the need for sort of upskilling and sort of duty of care and planning how to appropriately deliver this content and give people the skills that they need to for all of the considerations and factors to make these decisions that can be so immediate. Yeah I just don't think it's like very I don't think it's realistic I think it's, to be honest, I think it's really unfair and really elitist how short the timelines are for these grants that are coming out. First of all, the areas, the local council areas that these grants are coming out for, like the biggest in Australia are coming out of the Sydney, city of Sydney and the city of Melbourne. And they're really like quite amazing, the amount of money that people can apply for and the fact that there are grants to keep your organization going and also to create new projects, create a fellowship, like they're great opportunities, but they're great opportunities for people who are comfortable writing grants, for people who um, have worked competitively, for people who are like mid-career to established artists who are comfortable with their digital literacy in the sense that they know how to use a computer, engage with the like Smarty Grants platform. It's not so not so much um, kind of catering for people outside of those LGAs and difficult to kind of establish. If you don't already have established relationships with artists within those LGAs, you miss out. I know that here in Western Australia, there's no like real formal announcement from the West Australian government to do something similar. There's support from Lottery West, which is... I mean, the lotto and in collaboration <laughs> with the WA government. But that's only to support not-for-profits and community organisations and that you have to be able to prove that you've lost income or that a project can't continue. So there's nothing to support the commissioning of new works or the redirection of works, um, nothing for sole traders, smaller independent um, artists or businesses to kind of keep them afloat in the entire state of Western Australia right now. So... The, the, it's not like we're all kind of coming to these grants and these opportunities that are being offered. Like we're not all starting at the same starting line in the race and in terms of like our capacity, but also like where we actually live geographically. But then on top of that, the turnaround is just like the amount of time that people have to write these grants especially when there's so many other things that people have to deal with, like Centrelink and 
you know, if you're, you know, if you have multiple families living under your household or under, under your roof, like so many things that people have to think about. And then on top of that, try and push out a grant. And then on top of that, dealing with what might happen if you don't get the grant, like the partial care there is like people might invest so much time, especially if it's a new skill and to create writing these grants and doing research, but not make the cut. What happens to those people on the other side of that? who then don't get it and don't get any funding, how do those, how are those people are going to be supported mentally and physically and spiritually? And so it's asking people to like create, produce, 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 produce in response to like the government's grant programs that are being pushed out, but it's not giving them the most effective tools, which is like time really and resources are, are to support them through that time to do research so it's really like for me very disconcerting and very frustrating because all you see on these online forums is people being like I don't know how to you know fill out these grants or can somebody help me like I need I need some time and often the like webinars that are that off that are on that are free and you know accessible for people that are being held are actually quite inaccessible for people or don't take into account, you know, the different time zones that are people coming across the country into. So yeah, there, there are options for sure, but are they accessible? I don't think so. And this might be a little bit of a tricky question, but what do you think it would take for, like, what, is it things like policies needing to be in place uh, around support for artists interested in applying for grants? Or uh, is it sort of loosening the grant process or having, having offering alternative ways of applying for things? Like, what, what do you think that we need to see in the sector to improve some of these things? Yeah, well, I think that, like... I mean, we've already, after like all the Gonski cuts, kind of slowly realised in the arts over the last five years or so that the government isn't is no longer and should no longer be like our number one source of income as artists, um, just because they're so unreliable. And so, in some ways, it's actually really surprising to me that so many people have turned to and are, are interested in investing in, in the grants, like, just because slowly we've seen all that support being chipped away. And even now, with the most recent Australia Council grant announcements that came out, even though a lot of really amazing organisations did get funding, some really great organisations didn't. So, uh, actually, I think asking ourselves as artists, like, is invest is even engaging with the the grant system like is that just us feeding into the cyclical nature of that monster and of that beast that eventually is just going to like bite us as soon as it it, it suits them but then also i think thinking about you know like what is the responsibility of the arts orgs that have left artists in this situation in the first place like I was speaking to some artists this morning one in Melbourne and one in Auckland who's currently they're currently in lockdown on level four in New Zealand and Aotearoa right now and we were just talking about the force majeure clause and how so many artists have just kind of been like pushed out of contracts through the force majeure clause but that funding was already pre-approved for some of those organizations. So what happens with that money that those organizations already had? So maybe I think there's needs to be more discussion about how do we as an industry and how do we as independent artists support ourselves outside of the government 
because the government has proven itself so far in the last five years as unreliable and inconsistent in terms of its support for the arts community and that it doesn't value the arts community. But then on top of that, where are we going to find those resources? Like, is it philanthropy? If so, how do we, how do we even learn about philanthropy and sponsorship? A lot of the like current opportunities outside of grants seem to be from the artist community but artists are the ones that don't have the money. So how, uh, how people who are working in philanthropy and sponsorship and have relationships with donors, what are their responsibilities to the indie art sector or the solo artists in helping those people stay afloat and connecting those relationships so that more artists can be supported outside of the government grant system? But then also what can we do as artists to, I think, galvanized so that we're not just relying on selling to our friends and our family trying to kind of keep our our money afloat because I mean a lot of people have lost their jobs in the arts but a lot of people who don't work in the arts haven't lost their jobs there's a lot of people who um, are still willing to invest in the arts but haven't been connected to those audiences or haven't been connected to those art buyers so maybe there's an alternative in networks being set up that connect artists to philanthropists, people who are working day jobs, but are working from home now, still want to invest in art or have never invested in art before, but might be willing to make that investment now because they're stuck at home. So I think I'm, so any solution that I'm interested in is definitely outside of the grant conversation and definitely outside of artists relying on their friends and their family to support them because it's not just artists that support the arts there are people outside but the problem um, across the sector is connecting small organizations and small independent artists to people who can fund their work and knowing how to have those conversations maintain those relationships manage those relationships so I don't really know what I think any specific solutions are that I like to see, but I'm more interested in that conversation than engaging with the grant system altogether. Yeah, I guess it starts with that sort of education and upskilling. And sis, you're currently studying your master's and you've gone through WAPA and NIDA as well. I know that at my art school at ANU, there wasn't much information around how to turn your skills into a business and how to seek funding or philanthropy was definitely not a conversation. Um, That's only really something that I've been exposed to in the last year. So maybe it starts in an earlier platform when people are still learning about their practice. They also need to be upskilled in professional development and those sort of more business skills as well. Yeah, totally. I think that like, I mean, across the board, when I was studying, I definitely didn't, I didn't, I, we had like um, a couple of classes from an amazing woman <laughs> called Monica. She came into business classes with us in our third year every now and then. And they were like really great for people who um, I guess are in my situation now who are sole traders and kind of essentially their own businesses. Mm. Um, but aside from that, like any real tax information any real information on branding having your own business theater company like so much of the industry from the performing arts perspective was propped up on like relying on being a vessel of other people's stories Mm -hmm. not necessarily being the creator of your own or you being a vessel of other people's stories in the sense that you facilitate and create platforms for other people to tell their stories 
so yeah that's a total like in terms of the way that the industry I think from a performing arts and an acting perspective the way that it's set up is that drama schools tend to just kind of like teach people knowledge and content and then push out people who are reliant on an industry that has agents and has casting directors and producers who all just pick you based on whether they think you fit into their picture or their mold but don't necessarily give people the skills or encourage people to think about what um, stories they want to tell and then how to do that in a way that is independent and not reliant self-reliant so yeah I definitely think that there needs to be more upskilling on a practical level in terms of business just like business brains but even then the other day we were talking about like how great it would be if there was more upskilling on you know like home life like cooking and I had a friend I have a friend that I was talking to she's an artist she's a mom and she's Fijian she's an amazing artist Trika Mbola Tsangidi you should go look her up she's also a uh, lecturer at our university in Melbourne and she was saying that with her students they've they're building a playlist and sending each other recipes so they're doing their weekly classes but they're also you know looking after helping one another curate their home space and making that more comfortable and I think that sense of pastoral care is really informed by the fact that for her as an academic, it's really informed by the fact that she's an artist and she's a mom. And um, I definitely have felt that from my lecturers and tutors who are artists and moms, that the way that they reach out to me as a student has been very, very different. And so I wonder like, what could arts organizations, drama schools, like in the business of upskilling, what can they be doing to help people build their home space and make that more comfortable and also more self-sustainable like I really want Scott Morrison to just like announce some like free vegetable seed packets packages that are like going out to every house (laughs) and some information about like how to grow your own mini gardens but like that to be informed by like you know, knowledge from elders of the country that you're on or engaged with, like those kinds of initiatives are like more exciting for my heart and also for my practice. But I think also would really balance out the kinds of initiatives that we need as independent artists about how to be a business and how to advocate for yourself. Sis, you had an analogy that you shared with me, but you had a, a gas and oil analogy in relation to data in the context of, of the arts and your article that I found really interesting. Um, if you cared to share that with the rest of us. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> um, yeah, so I was reading this book somewhere in my house, I don't know where I put it, about marketing strategy, strategy and it was talking about, I guess, innovation and in marketing strategy and use the oil and gas industry as an example. And basically what it was saying was that the oil and gas industry for so long had really relied on their products having no competitor and therefore was able to like keep prices, I guess, dictate whatever the prices were um, for so long because they felt that and they felt assured by the fact that nobody else would, would really be able to compete with it. And as a result, from a marketing perspective, what that meant was the oil and gas industry hasn't really over the past, you know, a few decades invested in innovating the way that they market their product because they've just assumed that, you know, people, there's not going to be many technology innovations 
public transport, um, how like personal transport all still relies on diesel, oil and gas. And so there hasn't been many innovations. And as a result, innovations for those industries or as alternatives to those industries have come from outside of the oil and gas industry, from example, tech or from sustainability. And so now this, which is what we're seeing happening right now, is that as the world has slowly started to, I guess, engage less with public transport and personal transport, transport the prices of oil have significantly dropped like here in WA it's like 80 cents a liter some days most days and America is stuck having to find somewhere to store all this oil that they've bought because they're on these ongoing leases with companies in different parts of the world the the oil is still being reproduced and extorted but they have nowhere to put it and people are not engaging with it because the oil industry hasn't tried to innovate, haven't tried to offer alternatives or market it in an alternative way. And so when I think about that, and then I think about the performing arts industry and the arts industry, the broader arts sector, I, I think that's a really good analogy for how we are generally, we, I use that very generally, um, are struggling to engage with the switch to the digital because for so many, for so long, so many artists and companies, performing arts companies have been really resistant to the digital age. And I understand that. I think also, especially as someone who really, really, really cares about protecting Indigenous performance and the sacredness of Indigenous performance and what that means, I understand that something should be reserved just for the performance space and just for live interaction. But what that means is because so many people have spent so long resisting it, there isn't an established, I guess, like we said, policy, digital audiences, digital frameworks that exist for these um, organisations. And so, so many people and organisations within the arts and the performing arts industry are just instantly just trying to transfer what they do in live performance into a 2D version of um, the digital space. And so I, I kind of talked about it when I talk, referenced Dr. Bo Lotto's book um, about neuroscience is that, you know, like only 10% of our understanding or our perception of the world is built on what we see. The other 90% is built on our other senses. And so when we flatten our performance in the digital space, we're, we're really changing, completely changing um, the way that our audience is engaged. But because so many of our arts organizations and arts leaders have resisted engaging with social media, engaging with building digital platforms or finding other accessible ways for audiences to have a relationship with their performing arts um, and with their visual arts, now the quality of the work is really, really suffering. The quality of the marketing is really, really suffering. Um, and so you, I, like, I've seen every day probably or every second day I'll switch and tune into like maybe a live stream that has happened or is happening. And there'll be, you know, artists who are either commissioned to produce a work or artists who are getting paid by donation and maybe like 80 people watching or a couple of hundred people watching. And when you think about the capabilities of the internet and connectivity and how many people can be live streaming if it's global, it really is like, under, I think, really undercutting the value of what those artists, you know, are actually capable of. And so, yeah, I think I, I really liked that analogy. My, one of my teachers, one of my tutors was saying in class that 
you know, like when we engage with platforms, which is um, something we were talking about yesterday, sis, is that when we engage with products, if the product is free, then we are the product. So when we think about social media as a platform for artists to put their projects on or market their project, projects on as a platform that's free and accessible, that means that we ourselves, the artists, are the product, not necessarily um, what we're selling. So that's something I think in terms of like repercussions that we really have to take seriously is that we and our data is really heavily being mined by all of these platforms, all of these social media companies, especially companies like Facebook. And we don't know what they're going to do with it and because of their history. Um, what they have done with it so far hasn't been good at all. And so that's something that companies and organizations and artists really need to like, you know, get across. Yeah, that's huge. Well, Emily, you've given everybody a lot to think of and to consider, especially at this time, as people are being yeah, bombarded with online content and opportunities to produce online content. And hopefully it's a time that people consider things a little bit more deeply like data sovereignty. What I also really liked about your article was is that you provided a bunch of really helpful resources and uh, questions for people to consider. So, yeah, I guess you've brought uh, this written piece back to something quite interactive and really useful and already you're sort of providing some upskilling on, on this platform alone. Yeah, which is awesome. And I guess I'm saying thank you. <laughs> thank you. <laughs> I think it's like, it's so, yeah, it's so overwhelming. It really is like an overwhelming time. And there's a lot of information out there and a lot of content out there. So I, I didn't want to write it and people to feel really alienated or like attacked and then kind of just like left with all of these statistics and information and not no idea about where to look because mm -hmm. like that's the kind of reading that I hate. <laughs> and so, yeah, I just wanted to kind of like add those links at the end knowing that like almost every week there's new platforms that are coming up and people are redirecting the launch of platforms that are intended to like you know launch in the next year or the next six months um knowing that it's kind of just like a foundational resource list and should really just kind of like help people ask questions and do their own research because i really do want you know i do want people to be able to like step away from it feeling empowered rather than disempowered by the discussion and feeling like yeah we do have ownership over our ip and over our copyright and you know we and over how we're getting paid and reimbursed through all of this discussion like for me that's like the best case scenario on the isla side of that is that people come out feeling like they know more and that they're stronger um, as arts practitioners and advocate as arts advocates for themselves in the digital space so yeah, I, that really was the intent behind doing that, but also knowing that it's not a complete list and couldn't possibly be a complete list because we're just uh, receiving so much information all the time. Yeah. Well, I can't speak for everybody, but it definitely helped me feel a little bit stronger in, um, in terms of advocacy and navigating these digital platforms. That's like, I think that's it. Like everyone just comes to it with different experience, comes to it with different desires. And that's really important to acknowledge in the digital space as well. Like, even though it feels like we're all coming at to it, coming to it with a clean slate and we can build these identities and build these platforms and 
you know, project and perform on them. Everyone's intentions are different. And so we have to be, we have to respect that. And how do we respect that and maintain our integrity and the integrity of our work is like, that's what I think is really, really important in this discussion. Thanks so much for, yeah, making time to come and have these yarns and share all of this amazing knowledge and ideas and research. Yeah, with our members and broader arts community. Thank you. Thank you so much for having me, sis. Bye. Bye. Head to our website visualarts.net.au for more information on NAVA's advocacy and campaigns for improving the working environment for Australian artists and arts organisations.